All right, we're in Revelation chapter 5, great chapter. Uh, my expectation is that we'll get through the whole chapter, um, not that that's necessarily our goal, but, um, you know, if you've just been maybe uh, a little discouraged or, you know, overwhelmed by <clears throat> all of the negative information, you know, that sometimes we're so inundated with, uh, there are... There are some really good songs and sayings in this chapter uh, that I know they're going to really bless your heart. So let's pray and we'll jump into the scriptures. And Father, we do thank you for all of your faithfulnesses, God, for your, your goodness, um, just relentless. Even when we don't see it, we know, God, that you're working. Even when we don't understand, Father, even when it doesn't feel good, even in the midst of the storm, God, even in the midst of our own confusion, you do not change. It is impossible for you to be any different than the eternal God that you've always been. And we thank you for that, God. And we can sing with heaven that you are worthy. You're worthy to receive all blessing, honor, power, and glory. And in a time that uh, just feels so upside down, I pray, God, that that we would be right side up in seeing things from a heavenly perspective and that we would be singing the songs and, and expressing the sayings of heaven even in the valley of the shadow of death. You promised to never leave us. Lord, we thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes I think, wow, I've said that so many times, I'm not sure when I've said it, but I'm sure I've said this before, and I've probably said it recently, um, and I don't think it's inappropriate to say, because, you know, every day we have that experience where it's like, man, what in the world is going on? So many of the things that we're experiencing today are, I mean, they're unique, you know, they've not necessarily in this way been experienced before, and I think for sure it throws people for a loop. You know, Christians, Christians right now are thrown for a loop. It's like the world really does feel like it's upside down. Now, listen, the world is always upside down, and the gospel is the only thing that gets us right side up. But I'm saying, you know, there's a way that we see the world that, that even the way that we're used to typically seeing it is turned upside down. And I think in times like this, um, it can generate so much confusion Especially if we're taking our cues from the world, especially, you know, if our hearts and our ears and our eyes um, are tuning in to the way the world sees things and we're looking at life from the framework of, you know, the worldly perspective. And I'll just tell you right now, that will mess you up, right? I mean, having a steady diet of that will totally mess you up. This is why Revelation chapter 5 is so good, so important, such a blessing for you. Like you're going to get, are you ready to get blessed? I mean, really, it's up to you. I got blessed, and you might get blessed. You'll get blessed even if the teaching's miserable tonight, because just what we're going to read in and of itself is guaranteed to lift your heart up if your heart is open, right? Guaranteed to lift your heart up if your heart is open. And there's amazing insight. You know, from we're, we're going to see extraordinary things in this chapter. You're like, okay, well, let's get to it. Well, I'm not, yeah, in a minute, okay? Just hold your horses, you know, we're going to, the key thing tonight is the worthiness of Jesus, you know, and, and if you might say, well, that's every chapter of the Bible, Pastor. Yeah, it is, but you're going to see it in a very special way because there's insight into, you know, this scene in heaven and 
um, how desperate the circumstance and situation was for all of humanity. And then there's one that's identified. He is the lion. He is the lamb. He is the root of David. The key takeaway to today, tonight, for sure, is the worthiness of, of Jesus. But you're also going to see an explanation, I believe, of why the world is the way that it is. There's, a, there's a, an incident, there's an event that's going to take place in heaven, I believe sometime soon, that expresses very clearly why the world does feel so upside down all of the time. And the fact that there's no one outside of Christ who can supply the solution, who can fix the problem. But that is, in fact, what Jesus does. So we have insight given as to why the world is in the midst of the calamity that it's in. But then also, as we look forward, we have uh, this insight into how that period of the Great Tribulation is going to begin. So that seven-year period really does begin right here. There's an event that happens that, um, that kind of kicks it off. It's, it's, it, it's the first domino, if you will. <clears throat> now, if you're going to get super technical with me, like I know some of you love to do, thank you for that. You keep, you keep the uh, edge sharp. Um, you could say, well, really the first domino that fell was the rapture of the church. And we looked at that in Revelation chapter 4, at least from the perspective of those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Um, and so I'll concede that. But the next event, the next really significant event, is what we're going to read about here in chapter 5. And so remember, John is in heaven. Um, he's been taken up, uh, and he has this uh, amazing experience, this, this picture, this vision that he sees. Um, the door of heaven is open. Thank God for that, that it's not closed, it's not shut. And so, you know, we spent chapter 4 just... Uh, considering what it was that John observed. First, there was a throne. Then there was one who sat on the throne. Then, then there were these 24 elders surrounding the thrones, surrounding the throne, and, then, and also having their own thrones and crowns. And then seeing the lightnings and hearing the thunderings and hearing the voices, the seven lamps that see uh, like sea of glass that was like crystal, totally placid, you know, representing many things, but absolutely, uh, without a doubt, representing the fact that God is in control and all things in heaven are in a, a condition of peace. And then the four living creatures, uh, and then this beautiful picture of the 24 elders, from my point of view, representing the church, falling down before the one who sits on the throne and singing the second song that we've come across in the book of Revelation. After that... He continues after that in verse 1. He's just continuing his observations. Verse 1, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So John's attention, you know, obviously John was a, a person of detail. He's considering all of these things and faithfully writing them down, being obedient to the command that Christ had given him. And now as he's looking at the one that's sitting on the throne, he sees in the right hand, the right hand representing power and authority, this scroll. It had writings on the inside, it had writings on the outside, and it was sealed with seven seals. Um, what we're going to recognize is that each of these seals represent the judgment of God. In fact, uh, as the six seals are open... 
we're going to see that the seventh seal is opened, and that's going to initiate another seven judgments. So you have the seal judgments, seven of them. When the seventh seal is opened, it initiates seven more judgments. Those are the trumpet judgments. And when the seventh trumpet judgment happens, it initiates seven more judgments, with, which are the vile uh, judgments, V-I-A-L, not V-I-L-E. They're bold judgments. Um, you'll notice they're all catastrophic. These are not just natural disasters. They're not calamities created by man um, or even by the devil himself. They are the wrath of God, and they do get progressively worse. Some people believe that because you know, there's, there's a succession here of these seals being open, it indicates that you know, these expressions of God's wrath come in a chronological order. Um, I've mentioned that to you. There are others who believe that they happen simultaneously. Um, nevertheless, in the hand of him who sits on the throne is this scroll. Um, it would seem to indicate from the original language that it's not that uh, God the Father, because that's who's on the throne, it's not that God the Father had a, a tight grip on this scroll. Um, the wording seems to indicate that his hand was open and the scroll was on it, waiting for someone to take it from him. In ancient culture, the scroll had great significance from both the Roman perspective and from the Hebrew perspective uh, as well. And there are different views as to what this scroll might be. Um, there are those who see it from a, from a Roman lens, and it's possible that this scroll is kind of like a last will and testament. And uh, with a last will and testament, only the son who had been appointed uh, to inherit the, the full weight of the will was able to, to take it, was able to have the authority to open it, was able to have the authority to receive all that was within it. Um, we're going to see that it is, in fact, the Son who takes the scroll from the hand of the Father. And so this, this symbolism, I think, could be appropriate, you know, and, and it may be that the scroll represents the full inheritance of uh, heaven and earth. And so that's what the Father might be handing over to the Son. From the Hebrew perspective, oftentimes scrolls represented a title deed to a piece of property, and so from a Hebrew perspective, they would have been very familiar with this concept. You know, you would have, if you were going to pass on your property from generation to generation, you would have a title deed. Um, and uh, when you would either pass it on or maybe you were going to sell it, especially if you're going to sell it, there was always a clause at the bottom that opened up the opportunity for redemption by the kinsman redeemer. So typically what happens in the Hebrew world was... You were given a piece of property by inheritance. It was dedicated to a particular tribe. And the goal was to keep that property within that family, within that tribe, um, in perpetuity, forever. Um, if, in fact, you were in a financial situation where you had to sell the piece of property, because they were so dedicated to keeping that land within the tribe and family, there was always a clause at the bottom so that you know the, the kinsman redeemer, somebody from the family who had the right who had the authority, who had the pedigree, could come and purchase that land back if they had the capacity to do so. And so when they would sell the property, there would be a deed, that two deeds that were written. One was open. It was given to uh, the landowner. And then another deed that was sealed that was given to the kinsman redeemer or set aside for the kinsman redeemer. And then when that individual came along, the seals were broken, the scrolls were open, they were compared, 
And then, then that individual had to prove that he was able to fulfill the requirements to get that piece of property back to where it belonged. And so you're saying, well, what the heck does that have to do with this scroll? It's possible that this scroll represents the title deed to the earth. And you remember the story, Adam and Eve were given uh, dominion over the earth. In fact, that was, that was not just the command to be in a place where they were overseeing what God had given to them as representatives, but the scripture says that they were to be fruitful, that they were to multiply, and they were to have dominion. When they sinned in the garden, they forfeited, right? They were God's representatives. Um, they were kind of, the theological term is the federal head over all that God had made, and when they sinned in the garden, they, that authority was usurped by the serpent. And that title deed, you know, the control, the authority, the dominion was really handed over to him. This is why the Bible will say of the devil that he is the god of this age, that he uh, is the prince of the power of the air, that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And you see the evidence of it. I mean, the, why is the world... As upside down as it is, well, dominion was forfeited by Adam and Eve and handed over to the adversary. And we've been living in this condition of fallenness, waiting for one who is able, waiting for one who has the right, waiting for the one who has the pedigree and the capacity to be able to take that back and to assert his dominion over it. The kinsman redeemer, uh, the almighty one who is not only God himself, but also the son of man. Uh, incarnate, the word of flesh incarnate. So it's possible, all that to say, it's possible that that's what this scroll represents. Well, this is how the event plays out. Verse 2, then I saw a strong angel or, or a mighty angel. Lots of angels in heaven, um, you know, when they're unique, John will say something uh, about them. He'll qualify the angel in some way. And he does this a couple of times in the book of, of Revelation. So this is a very, this is an angel with a lot of capacity. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who was worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So obviously this angel for sure has a lot of capacity. It is a uh, strong angel, and the angel makes this declaration uh, in the form of a question. Now, I think for sure the question was known, the, the answer to the question was known by the angel um, and definitely by those in heaven, but it's in a sense a rhetorical question to prove a point. So here you have this, let's just say, title deed to planet Earth sitting in the hand of the Father. The hand is open, and the declaration is made, hey, who is able to turn this situation around? Who is able to fix the problem that we have? Who is able to reverse the curse? Who is able to undo this issue of dominion that was handed over to the devil by Adam when he sinned in the garden? And the scripture is clear. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. There was no one. Look, no philosopher, um, no other religious leader, no pol political system or structure no powerful or mighty nation, no psychologists, you know, the list goes on. Why is it that we are so often looking to man to solve the problems that only God himself can solve? 
In fact, the situation was so discouraging to John, the Bible says, John himself just said, I wept much. The word wept here is, is the strongest word in the original language uh, for weep. It means to weep convulsively. Let me just say it in really nasty terms. John was snot crying all over the place, all right? I mean, it was a, it was a rugged moment. He was so depressed. He was so discouraged. You know, from, from, from his perspective in that moment, he lost sight of the Savior and was co- just considering how miserable the condition of the earth not only was, but probably was always going potentially to be. Now, let me just say, I, I don't want to put thoughts in John's mind, but I will tell you, when we get our eyes off of Jesus Christ, that's exactly the road that we go down. Right? I mean, what happens when you stop trusting the Lord? What happens when you stop looking to the Savior and the Deliverer and the Righteous One? What happens when you get inundated by the news cycle? What happens when you get all caught up and consumed and swept away by the social media feed, right? That is nothing more than an echo chamber reiterating to you your own established position. Look, what happens is you start to, you start to lose faith. You start to become discouraged. Pretty soon you have this cloud hanging over your head. And all the while, the scripture is saying and encouraging us to look to the Savior. And so this is exactly what happens. Verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Why do not weep? Why do not weep? Because a superpower is going to come in, swoop in and save the day? Because a Marvel hero? Because Thor is going to arrive or Captain America? Behold, no, we got better than that, church. We got, amen, do we not have better than that? We have better than anything the world has to offer. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Man, what an awesome word. This is where I pause and wait for you to respond. Hey, are you, are you beholding him? Are, yeah, I'm asking right now. Are you beholding him? Yes or no? Answer the question. Have you been beholding him? You know, during, during the week, last week, were you beholding him? Were, you, were your eyes set on the lion of the tribe of Judah? I mean, the names for Jesus here, the appellations are so amazing, and they seem so... They're not only descriptive, but, but they also seem to be in such great contrast. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's described in this portion of scripture as the lion and the lamb. He is the lion. Uh, he is the regent. He is the king. There is no one higher or greater than he is. He is not just the king of the jungle. He is the king of the universe. He is. He is dignified. He is unparalleled. He is the almighty God. He's not just a man. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a pattern or a rule to follow. He is God incarnate. He is victorious. He is victorious. The Bible says that he has crushed Satan underneath his feet. He won the, he won the victory at the cross He was raised again from the dead on the third day, and he has ascended to the highest height. There is no one higher, there is no one greater, there's no one loftier than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the avenger of the wrath of God. 
He is the avenger of the wrath of God. He is also the root of David. So look, not only do we know that this means that he came from the line of David, this was the, the promise to the Hebrews, one of the greatest promises in Isaiah chapter 9, says that he will come from David and that he will have an everlasting government and the, the government and the world itself will sit upon his shoulders because he's stronger than Atlas, who would be crushed under its weight. He can handle the weight of the universe. And let me just say, by the way, BTW, that if he can handle the weight of the universe, he can, he can handle your problems. He can handle your stuff. You all got some stuff tonight, don't you? Like you rolled, you rolled in with some stuff on your shoulders, and you know what you need to do? You need to roll it over onto his shoulders so you can roll on out of here with a piece of God. That, that's, that's what needs to happen tonight. And, and you don't be, don't be uh, intrepid about it. Don't be concerned about maybe he's got too much going on or his hands are really full because his hands bear uh, within the wrist the holes that he took, the nails that pierced his wrist. He hung on the cross. If he can handle the whole sin of the world, he can handle your issue, right? Casting all of your care upon him because he cares for you. What issue? What issue are you dealing with? What struggle has been bearing down upon you? What discouragement or darkness has been clouding your eyes? Place it in the almighty hands of the one who loves you more than anybody else, more than anybody else in all of existence, and trust him with it. He is the root of David. He is the king of Israel. He is not just the product of David's line, but he is, he is the inception. He is the seed of David's line uh, himself. And he has prevailed, the Bible says, he has conquered. I, look, I think that that's plenty of reason for us not to weep, not to be overwhelmed, not to be discouraged or consumed with fear, but you know we'll only be in that condition of peace and trust and rest if we are beholding the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He goes on to verse 6, and he says, and, and I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, uh, key word there, midst, stood a what? Yeah, don't whisper it, church, come on. Stood, stood, say, I know it's Sunday night, and y'all like are, you ate a big lunch and watched football, but I bet you were louder when you were watching your football game this afternoon. Stood a what? Stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So he gets the message, right? He didn't have to see first before he believed. He trusted, right? The word came. Sometimes God is going to call you to believe before you see, right? That's what, that's what faith is. There are times that God is going to call you to believe before you see. In fact, this is what he said to Thomas. He said, Tom, Thomas is like, all right, I, I believe, you know, I see. Because he was in that place where he said to the other disciples, Jesus rolls in. Ten of the disciples are gathered together. He reveals himself to them. Thomas wasn't present. They go and tell Thomas, hey, we've seen the Lord. He says, unless I see with my own eyes, unless I place my hands in the holes in his wrist and the hole in his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. And so what happens? The 11 are hanging out together, and Jesus pops in for a visit. He pops in for a visit. He has some food. He just appears, right, walking through the door, walking through the wall, has some food, beckons Thomas to come on over. <clears throat> Get on over here, boy. 
Come on, let's deal, let's deal with this issue of unbelief. Let's de deal with this issue of unbelief. Thomas, place your hands in the holes in my wrist and the hole in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, hey, blessed are you because you've seen and believed. How much more are those who do not see yet have believed, how much more are they blessed? I mean, this, look, we wait with anticipation. We've heard the word. We've heard the word. We've responded in faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. One day, we will not only hear, but we will see with our own eyes. We will look on him. We will look on him with our own eyes. John was believing before he saw, but the, but the seeing ultimately came. And as he's looking, he sees the throne, and he sees the four living creatures. He sees the elders, and in the midst of all of them, in the center, look, the placement's important. The placement's significant. This is not like John is just laying this out so we can get an idea of how things were organized. He wants us to know the centrality of the lamb in the scene of heaven. And so this is what he says. In the midst of all of this, I saw a lamb. In Greek, it's diminutive, diminutive, which means a little lamb, a little lamb, like a pet lamb, as though it had been slain. I think the diminutive aspect with respect to the original language is conveying to us, not only is he the lion, not only is he ferocious, not only is he the avenger of God's wrath, not only is he victorious and mighty and strong, but he is also vulnerable. He intentionally, of his own will, made himself vulnerable to humanity. He was numbered among the transgressors, and he was taken to the cross, and he was crucified. In fact, when John beholds the lamb, he beholds the lamb as one who had been slain. The word slain means to be butchered. I just, you know, like in your mind, I don't know what this looked like, okay? But in your mind, don't think little fluffy, puffy, white lamb, you know, that you could hold in your arms. We're talking about, we're talking about the lamb of God that was born to take away the sin of the world. We're talking about the fulfillment of Exodus chapter 12, which was the sacrificial lamb on the Passover that was sacrificed for the family. The blood was poured into the basin. The blood was then sprinkled on the doorpost and the lentil of the house. And the angel of destruction passed over in mercy as it saw the blood. We're talking about that lamb. When John said, John said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he's saying every Passover sacrifice has been pointing to this lamb. This lamb that has, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, taken away not only our sins, but also the sin of the whole world for those who believe. The lamb that was butchered, the lamb that was slain. And because he is the lamb that was slain, what we're going to notice is this is what enables him to be worthy to take the scroll from the hand of the Father. He's further described, the Bible says, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Horns represent authority and power in Scripture. Eyes represent wisdom. And the Spirit of God, for sure, represents the presence of God. Seven is the number of completion. So we're talking about complete power. We're talking about complete wisdom. And we're talking about complete presence. In theological terms, we're talking about omnipotence. We're talking about omniscience. And we're talking about omnipresence. And so in this description, what you have is another declaration. You have another 
albeit somewhat indirect, exclamation that this lamb, this lion of the tribe of Judah, this root of David, is God incarnate himself. The Bible says in verse 7, y'all still with me? Good. Then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So no argument, no difficulty there. Um, He had the unique authority and right to do that. Verse 8, now when he had taken the scroll, this is a big event, this is a big deal. Remember, we're talking about, um, we're talking about the initiation of the seven-year tribulation period, and we're also talking about the complete reversal of the curse, taking away the dominion that Satan has beheld, and uh, leading the way into this glorious millennial kingdom, the new Jerusalem that descends from heaven and everlasting life. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, we'll get to the new song in just a minute. So we're familiar with these creatures. They've been described to you. Um, Four living creatures, 24 elders. Um, There they are surrounding the lamb, the lamb present in the center of them. When the scroll is taken from the father by the lamb, the reaction is this, is to fall down in worship. Um, Let me just remind us that the only one that is worthy of worship is the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. It is absolutely right for us to worship the Lord because he is God. In fact, just back to the story of Thomas, Thomas made that declaration. He said, my Lord and my God. In fact, the Bible says that Thomas worshiped him and said, my Lord and my God. Now, if Jesus was just a man, um, he would have said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Listen, Thomas, chill out, dude. Like, you know, rein rain in the excitement. I know, I know you're a little excited in this moment, but you just need to peel back some of the religious fervor. I'm not God. Don't worship me. There's, there, there's, there is the monotheistic God of the Jews and worship him and him alone. He didn't do that. He fully received the worship of Thomas because to worship Jesus is to worship God. These 24 elders have golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So you're going to see here in this story as, you know, there's such a significant reaction to uh, the lamb taking the scroll from the hand of the father you're going to see not only praise, but you're going to see prayer. You're going to see praise, and you're going to see prayer. Man, those two things are so intimately connected together. They're so intimately connected together. In fact, I would say, and we, I hope that we know this, praise is prayer. Praise is prayer. Listen, when you're singing, who are you singing to? You're singing to God. You aren't singing to Miriam when she leads us in worship. Man, I hope she really likes my voice, and maybe I can get a spot on the worship team, and you know, you're, you're for sure not singing ne- for the people next to you because they're like, dude, can you tone it down because your voice really sucks? <laughs> you know, well, you know, you've heard this a million times, but the Bible just simply says, make a joyful noise, not a beautiful noise. But the truth is this, praise is prayer. Praise is prayer. Um, what the world sees as absolutely insignificant on this earth is absolutely beautiful in heaven. The world would look at you, you know, when you say, hey, well, you know, I'm just trusting God and I'm going to pray. The world says, man, that is the most useless thing that you could possibly do. 
And, and yet as you pray, heaven says that is the most amazing thing that you could possibly do. Like you are resonating with the heart of heaven. The next time somebody says, what, you're praying for your kids? You, you idiot, that's not going to do anything. You can say, well, it, it doesn't matter whether you hear my prayers or not. It matters whether or not God hears my prayers. And the scripture says that they rise like an incense to him. They're a fragrant aroma. They fill the throne of heaven. They, you know what incense is like. My kids love incense. I was a hippie, so, I mean, not like I was alive in the 60s and 70s, but I was uh, a hippie born out of due time. So I loved incense, too. But now, like, I go upstairs, and there's just plumes of incense, right? And you walk through it, and you literally smell like incense for the rest of the day. It sticks to you. And your prayers are like that to the heart of God. They're like that to the heart of God. You know, God does not have amnesia. God does not have dementia. God does not have short-term memory issues. God does not have long-term memory issues. God does not necessarily need you to remind him, but he's blessed when you do, right? God does not need you to remind him, but he's blessed when you do. Not in saying, God, you probably forgot, but in, in an attitude of persistence, like that persistent widow that just would not stop bugging that unrighteous judge. And the guy, being an unrighteous judge, he had just had enough, and so he conceded to her demands. How much more will your heavenly Father, who's a righteous judge, how much more will your, will your heavenly Father, who is your heavenly Father, as you are persistent, as you're bringing that prayer to him, and in your persistence, what you're conveying is it's a burden to your heart. It really matters to you. It is an issue that you deeply care about. You're not going to let go of it. You're tenacious. You know, Rachel's grandma, grandma was like a prayer pit bull. She literally was a prayer pit bull. And man, we had to call her off. Like we'd have her pray for something and she'd be praying. And if we didn't call her off five years down the road, she's, she'd be like, hey, what, how's this thing going? I was like, uh, grandma, God answered that prayer like five years ago. Thanks. Thanks for praying. Whoops. Thanks for praying. Whoops. Sorry, forgot to, to let you know, but I love that tenacity. I love that tenacity. Never minimize the beauty of prayers. They may be considered useless on earth, but they are priceless in heaven, right? So we have, we have the prayers of the saints that are being offered, and they sang a new song. This is the third song or saying in the book of Revelation, and it goes, it, it goes something like this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests who are God, and we shall reign on the earth. So look, this, this song, the way it's written, the way it's translated in the New King James Version, uh, it uses the... Uh, plural personal pronoun, us. Some of your translations that are based in the eclectic text uh, might have the word them there. So instead of us, your translation says them. Let me just see, show of hands. Does your translation say you're, you won't get kicked out of the church? It's okay, it's okay. Yeah, okay, all right. So, you know, 25 of the 26 oldest manuscripts um, trans. We translate that particular word into us and not them. And it makes a significant difference as to who, in fact, is singing this song. If you believe that the 24 elders represent the church, 
uh, then when you see the word us and you go back to the most ancient manuscripts and you know out of the 26, 25 of them would be translated as us and not them, it kind of verifies the idea that the 24 elders do in fact represent the church. Um, however, I mean, this is not an issue of salvation, and so, you know, there's freedom to disagree on it. Um, I will say this. This is the song of the redeemed, right? Those who have been, those who've been fr from the perspective of the New King James Version, those who've been washed, those who've been transformed and changed, those who've been conveyed out of the kingdom of darkness in, into the kingdom of God's Son, who is the uh, object of the Father's love. And all of it is so good, right? There's a declaration first and foremost. Like I said, the key takeaway tonight is that Jesus is worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. Why is that the case? Well, for you were slain. You were sacrificed. You handed your life over willingly, right? To the extent where you were even willing to say on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You were slain uh, not just as um, an unfortunate incident that happened to an altogether good person. It wasn't just a random series of events that happened, um, unfortunately, to a person who lived a relatively good life. No, this was determined by God. In fact, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that God himself delivered up his son. This was the intention of the triune Godhead before the world was ever made. In fact, the Bible says that he was slain before the world was ever made in the sense of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit knew exactly what it was that they were going to do before time itself was created. According to the, to the good pleasure of their will, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. The word redeemed uh, means to be purchased back. It means the purchase price was paid so that the new owner could fully possess. Um, it was used in the slave marketplace, you know, when a, a slave would be uh, on the slave block to be sold. There was a purchase price that was the going price for that particular individual. Someone would come along and say, hey, I'm willing to pay that price. The price was paid, and that individual became miserable institution, that individual became the property of the person who purchased them. Just as an illustration, because the Bible says we were slaves to sin and unrighteousness. In a sense, we were on that block. We were enslaved. We, we were incapable of doing any good thing to earn favor in the eyes of God. But what did God do? Well, God paid the purchase price. This is what Peter talks about when he says, that we've been redeemed not by corruptible things like silver and gold according to the traditions of our fathers, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The purchase price for our freedom, for our redemption, for our deliverance was the very blood of Christ, which when we take communion, we remember the sacrifice that he made for us. It is by his blood, not by your works, not by your efforts, not by your attitude, you know, not, not by the level that you pursue him with, not by, you know, who, align, who you align yourself with politically, not because you live in the United States, not because you were born in the Bible Belt, right? Not because Grandma Gertrude went to 
the same church that you go to now, and your family's been on the church roll for five generations. Hey, look, that doesn't save you. I hate to say this because it's said so often, but that doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. All right? So, so I'm just saying, how did it happen? What did he do? He made a sacrifice. He paid the price. And if you believed in Christ, you belong to God, not because of your efforts, but because of his. Now, listen, heaven is not a place of prejudice. Heaven is not a place of bigotry. The Bible says, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The Bible is not just, just you know, this is not hyperbole. This is not a whole bunch of synonyms just connected together saying the same thing. No, tribe and tongue and people and nation. We're starting small. This is your people group. This is your language. This is the larger body of people that you belong to. These are including nations and governments and geopolitical boundaries. God is saying out of every single one, there, there is no prejudice in the kingdom of God. You know, I, I love the beauty of diversity, diverse ethnicities, because in it we see a beautiful picture of the saving power of Jesus Christ in his love for all humanity. You know that. And look, he sees, he sees the skin, and he sees beyond the skin into our very hearts. And if you love diversity, look, if you love the beauty of, of various ethnicities, heaven is going to be an absolutely amazing place. Which is why I want to say to you that there is no place in the body of Christ for prejudice, right? There is no place in the body of Christ for bigotry or racism. And, and listen, if you have a problem with that, you'll have a problem with heaven, right? So, so what we ought to be doing, by the way, none of us should have an issue with this, right? We should be rejoicing in this because, because if I want to say he died for me, how can I say he didn't die for somebody else? Normally for me, it's like, oh man, you want to talk about the pit that God pulled me out of. Like I was so jacked up, if God can rescue me, God can rescue anybody. He can, he can, he can save you too, if he saved a wretch like me. I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm saved. And not only does he select out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, but he is elevated. He's elevated us. And even, let me just go far, uh, so far as to say, he in a sense has exalted even us. He's made us kings and priests to our gods. Look, you might be the lowliest person on the face of the earth. Like you look at yourself and your social standing and the place you live and the car you drive and the clothes you wear, and you think, man, I couldn't be on a lower rung I couldn't be on a lower rung in the society that I live in. And if you're a Christian, let me say, you couldn't be on a higher rung. You couldn't be on a higher rung. You know, the world may look at you and say, wow, that's what, what a waste of a life that is. The Lord looks at you and says, man, that's one of mine. That's one of my kings. That's one of my priests, right? That's one of my anointed. That's one of my selected. That's one of my gifted. That's one of my privileged, right? That's one of my privileged. Hey, you, are, you have a place of privilege in the kingdom of God, be, not because of who you are or what you've brought to the table, but because of what he has done for you. It's so good. And he's just, hey, the song's working its way up, and we shall reign on the earth. Man, that, that is going to be a glorious day. Um, hey, check out verse 12. We're, we're going to have to stop there, but check out verse 12. The Bible says, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches, riches and wisdom. 
and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Excuse me, down to verse 13. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So I want you to go back. We're going to wrap up with this very short exercise. I want you to go back to chapter 4. Because so far, like if you're paying attention to what heaven is saying, and I'll just tell you guys, I, I'm like, God, please. I just want to speak like heaven speaks. You know, I guard my mouth. Guard my mouth. You know, I can, I can be so reactive. I can be so reactive. And I'm a very driven person, like with high demands. And I can be so forceful, you know, and so, so opinionated. Like if you really want to think about someone who's got an opinion on everything, you're looking at him. I've got issues, all right? And, and I'm like, God, please, I just want to think like heaven thinks. I want to speak like heaven speaks. I, I need a gate set over my mouth. And so, look, if we say that, we have to also say, well, what does heaven speak like? What is, what is said in heaven? Well, let me tell you what's said in heaven. The Bible says in verse 8 of chapter 4, and just get your eyes on this with me. I want you to be an active participant tonight. This is what heaven says, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's what heaven says. Heaven says in verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will, and King James Version adds, and for your pleasure, I like that, so let me just synthesize the two, and by your will and for your pleasure, they exist and were created. Song saying number two. Song saying number three. This is the new song. You are worthy, verse 9, chapter 5. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Song saying number four, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Song Saying number five, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. I want to encourage you with an exercise this week. You know, I think we can get into habits, really, really bad habits. And, you know, there's such an access to technology nowadays that, you know, we've got it in our hand. We've got our phone. We're tethered our being is tethered to the, to the phone, right? I mean, it's just constantly, how many hours every day do we find ourselves willfully consumed by content that's coming through our phone and not always good content? I want to encourage us this week to put a pause on the media content and to engage in heaven's content, all right? To engage in heaven's content. When the temptation is there to surf the web, when the temptation is there to check out the social media streams of everybody else who agrees with you, just, just put it on pause. Put it on pause. Go to chapter 4 and chapter 5 and just read this. Read this over and over to a, a place where you're meditating on it, chewing on it, thinking about it deeply, letting it penetrate your heart. You know, one of the most when I study, I would say the best piece of my study time 
in addition to prayer, is just reading the portion of Scripture over and over and over again, and just letting it not just settle on my mind and my heart, but to begin to sink deeply, you know, to, to penetrate, um, to infiltrate, to, to percolate, says I'm on the eight words, to percolate, right? That's what ha- it doesn't happen in the, in the desert here. When it rains here, because it's caliche, it's just a, a flood of water. But if you live in a place where there's good soil, what happens is that water falls onto the soil and it percolates into the ground. And the, the water table builds up. And if our hearts are right, look, and if, if, you're, if you're sitting here t- tonight and you're like, when's this junk going to be over so I can watch the football game or go have dinner? Like, you're like Kalichi, all right? And you don't even know I'm talking about you right now because you're so totally distracted by your own stuff. You're like Kalichi. The, the, the water of the word is going to run straight off your heart, straight off your heart. But if our hearts are tender and sensitive, and we're willing to meditate on God's word, you know what's going to happen? We read, we reread, we, we think about it, we chew on it, we let the Spirit of God speak to our hearts, and it percolates, it infiltrates, it gets in to places that, that need to be got into. I know that's really bad English, I don't care, but that need to be got into. It kicks open doors that have been closed to God. It is like the rushing mighty wind blowing through the temple, blowing out the dust like Keith Green used to sing, blowing out the dust that's accumulated and bringing real life. It's all of that to say, let's meditate on heaven's sayings this week. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. And we, we love you, God. We need to meditate more. We need to give more space to you and time. We need, for for many of us, maybe not all of us, but for some of us, we need heaven to influence our hearts. And we need to give less time to the worldly platforms and more time to the platform of the scriptures. And so help us, God, to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church, to this, your church tonight. Whether we're present in this room or watching online or listening, we pray, God, that you would really shake our lives and that there would be meaningful, lasting fruit from this time that we've spent with you. We love you. It's in Jesus, Jesus' name, the one who is worthy the one to whom belongs all blessing, honor, glory, and power, both now and forever, the one who was slain and has redeemed us to you by his own blood, to the only one who is worthy, to the name that is above all other names, the name that, that deserves to be high and lifted up and exalted, to the one who is worthy of our worship, that we tonight can say, my Lord and my God, we have heard and we believe, and tonight we worship. Like the 24 elders, we fall down before you because no one else, no one else is worthy.